Open your Bibles to Romans chapter number 3 today. Romans chapter number 3. Take out your worship guide. If you did not grab one, I think we still have a few left at our side entry table and also in our lobby, so you can go grab, the, grab one if you need one. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, look on with a friend or pull it up on your lovely smartphone. How many of you have a smartphone? Raise your hand or hold up your smartphone if you got one. Go ahead and turn it into the vibrate position so that we don't get any phone calls during the service. And uh, keep your smartphone held up if you've got an iPhone. Who, who is the cool people who have the iPhones? <laughs> How many of you are like, cool people, what are you talking about? I've got Android. Who has an Android? Raise your hand if you've got an Android. All right, so those are the droids. We got the droids and the apples. The droids and the apples. Looks like the apples, though, got, got you a little outnumbered there, droids. Um, today's message is... Uh, going to be a lot of bad news, but in order to appreciate the good news, you have to share with people the bad news. And the reason I asked you about your smartphones is all of us are very familiar with the iPhone. It has become the quintessential uh, item of desire for most people. You got to have an iPhone to keep in touch. You know, I mean, what did we do without cell phones and smartphones 20 years ago? I mean, it's crazy. I mean, what did you do on the elevator with strangers when you didn't have a smartphone 20 or 30 years ago? You actually talked to them and got to know people. It's so funny. I, uh, I go to different places where they have elevators, and you get on the elevator, and the first thing people do, look down at their phones. Just part of life, I guess, these days. But anyway, the iPhone is ubiquitous in our culture today, along with all of Apple's products, whether you're a fan or not. It's, uh, it's, uh, it can't be argued that Steve Jobs was probably one of the greatest inventors of the last uh, several decades. And um, in 2003, Steve Jobs, uh, the inventor of the iPhone and CEO of Apple at that time, went in for a routine uh, CT scan because he was dealing with kidney stones. Um, Steve Jobs was diagnosed with, uh, but, but, but during this scan, the, doc, the, the doctors found something that they didn't expect to find. Uh, they found a small shadow on his pancreas. Um, Steve Jobs was diagnosed with neuroendocrine islet pancreatic cancer. The silver lining, though, in that cancer diagnosis was the unexpected news that this cancer was one of 5% of cancers that are slower growing and likely to be cured with prompt surgery and aggressive, timely treatment. Oddly enough, and if you read the biography of Steve Jobs' life, Walter Isaacson wrote a masterpiece on his life. Oddly enough, Steve Jobs refused to undergo the prompt surgery and the treatment that the doctors recommended for nearly nine months. Why did he do that? There were many reasons, I think, in Steve's mind that you'll find out in the book, but Walter Isaacson, who wrote his biography, summed it up the best with the following. He said, I think that Steve kind of felt that if you ignore something, if you don't want something to exist, you can have this magical thinking and it had worked for him in the past, and he was referring to his business dealings and how he had had this magical, positive thinking, ignoring the negative, focusing on the good. And it had helped him in the past in that, so he thought he could beat it with juices and drinking more water and all kinds of other things. 
Looking back, Steve greatly greatly regretted in his final days, he talked with Isaacson, who was writing his biography, and he regretted not accepting the reality of his diagnosis sooner. By the time that they did do the surgery nine months later after his his initial diagnosis, the cancer, even though it was slow-growing, had already spread to his liver and to other areas of his body. And so in October of 2011, Steve Jobs sadly passed away at the age of 56. Many could argue that if he had responded to the seriousness of his situation sooner, that perhaps he would still be alive today. In our study today, as we read Romans chapter 3, I want you to see what God is telling us. He's diagnosing every single one of us. The name of our message, the title of our message today is Reducing Sin. At just as Steve Jobs did, many of us, when we hear the reality of our spiritual condition before God, we do exactly what Steve did when we first hear it. We say, oh, it can't be that bad. Oh, I've got time to deal with this later. And what you're going to see here in these 15 or 16 verses that we're just going to read for a moment, you're you're going to see the seriousness of the situation of all of humanity and how this not only translates to those who are still without Christ who might be here in this room today, but also if you know Christ, I think sometimes we forget how serious our sin was. And I'll share with you why I think that here in a little bit in our message. But let's just read this passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. And we'll read about 16 verses here. Romans 3, verse 10. The Bible says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's our spiritual diagnosis. We've all sinned. Verse 11, there is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They're all lost. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps or snakes is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, I have to stop us for a moment because the danger for many of us is if we've grown up in church, we're reading this and we're like, ooh, yeah, those people. No, you have missed it. If you're reading this thinking, oh, yeah, those people. If you read this and you study the context, Paul's saying, all y'all, all of us. Notice what he says next. Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it says to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. Every mouth. None of us will be able to argue our way into heaven on our own good efforts, on our own worthiness, because we, we, we won't measure up. All have sinned. James says it like this, he who keeps the whole law and yet offends in one point, he's guilty of all. So we've all sinned. This is our diagnosis, that the world may become guilty before God. Verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, there shall be no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's bad news. Wouldn't you agree? Verses 10 through 20, 
bad news. But don't stop reading. Verse 21. But now, I'm so thankful for those but nows in the Bible. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. (gasps) There's this good news. You mean righteousness outside of the law? Righteousness that, that that is something that can't be earned through trying to keep the law? You mean a righteousness that is given? Yes. Righteousness without the law being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon them all that believe For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness, to give it, to grant it, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. And all God's people said, amen, that is good news. Father, bless us during this time as we study this truth and and, and as we look at the reality that so many times we catch ourselves in the trap of reducing sin. And the problem is, Father, when we reduce the bad news, we also diminish the good news. So, Father, help us to see the bad news today. Today's heavy on the bad, but as we read in the end of this passage, you got good news because you're a good, good Father. And you want us to accept the bad news, face the reality of it, but then to receive the cure the good news. So Father, help me today, both today and also next week, as this is somewhat of a two-part message. Um, Help us today to receive what you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned to you, Steve, he would probably still be with us today if he had received the reality of his diagnosis as it stood. But because he delayed, because he reduced the reality of what he was facing, he faced certain death. And folks, our tendency is to do the same in our own lives when we hear things that we don't want to hear about us. When we hear things like we are sinners, that we are in need of rescue, that we are in need of God's grace. Because built into the human condition is this thought that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We can do enough. We can be good enough. We can try enough. But the reality is we've all tried that and we failed over and over and over And Paul lays out here the bad news of the human condition. And so I want you to see just a few thoughts this morning as we think about this passage that we just read and look at some other scriptures from God's Word. Number one, we need to face the reality of this bad news. And that's exactly what God calls all of us to do throughout God's Word. And really, the Old Testament preps us for that. I mean, the Old Testament lays out a group of people, the nation of Israel, who could not live up to God's standards. And so they face the bad news. And really, Israel's a microcosm description of all of humanity. Because how many of you have ever read about the nation of Israel in the Old Testament? You're like, why couldn't they just get their act together? Sometimes I've been reading in my Bible study and said, man, they were so stubborn. They were so unbelieving. They wandered in the wilderness for 38 years. How dumb can you be? And then I look at my own life. And I'm, and I'm still struggling to get truth in my head, you know. I feel like sometimes I'm wandering in a wilderness. Sometimes I'm stubborn. I know that's hard to believe, but sometimes I'm stubborn. My wife will tell you that. You know, that, that, that's the reality of all of us, is that we have to accept 
the reality of this bad news. You see, sin is like spiritual cancer. It's terminal. All of us have it. And to really understand the cure and deliverance of God's grace and the good news and, 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 and to where that good news really is like a breath of fresh air, we have to understand that we were first suffocating. We were first drowning in our own sin and in our own efforts to try to deal and manage that sin. And so what I want us to see in this reality of this bad news is, number one, this isn't just a behavioral problem. Sometimes when we think about sin, the first thing we think about is the things that we do. Like, I do bad stuff, therefore I am a sinner. But do you know that's not how the Bible defines it? Now, before I get there, let me just share this, because it's it's not just a behavioral problem. When we think of sin as simply behavioral, we shift our focus to trying to be better. Because naturally, if sin is basic, mainly behavior, then we focus on trying to change that behavior. Now, is it noble to have good behavior? Absolutely. Is it a good idea to have good behavior? Absolutely. Um, Is it good for relationships and society to have good behavior? Of course. Listen, good behavior will keep you out of jail. (laughs) Amen. And good behavior will keep you in good relationships with those around you. But it's a limited view when it comes to our understanding with our relationship with God, because God says that even our righteous behavior is as filthy rags compared to his holiness. So we know, even just from those few little clues in the Bible, that that it's not just a behavioral problem. It's secondly a systemic being problem. So if you're taking notes, those aren't there, but those two thoughts, it's not just a behavioral problem, but it's a systemic being problem. What do we mean by that? What we mean is, is that this sin issue, the reality of the bad news that we are sinners, is a systemic core issue. We are not sinners because we do sins. We are sinners because we were born in Adam and we sin because we're sinners by nature, by an old birth. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. So if you have not placed your faith in Christ yet, the bad news is you were born to die. You were born already with a death sentence over your life. You were born in Adam. You were born spiritually dead. And so the Bible declares that this is a systemic being problem, just as cancer is. Cancer isn't just a surface thing. We know that the reason that cancer is so insidious and so dangerous is because it starts at the core on the cellular level with mutations of cells, and it grows unnoticed for perhaps months or even years. And the issue of sin is not just surface behavior issues. It is the core. It is at a spiritually cellular level. And so when I think of this systemic issue, I automatically go to something that happened last uh, month in the month of April. How many of you know what this is a picture of? To illustrate this issue, that it is a systemic issue. How many of you are space cadets like your pastor? Raise your hand. All right. This is an incredible photo because this is the first ever photo of what scientists believe at this point. Of course, these are so far away, we're not totally sure. But there's great evidence that this is the first ever photographed black hole. Ooh, pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, I really geeked out when I saw this photo. I'm like, wow! Because a black hole... What is a black hole? It's something that is so 
dense, it, it's, it, it's an area of space that has such powerful gravity and such dense mass that literally everything, including light itself, collapses in on itself and it becomes a tear, literally, in the fabric of space and time. There's been a lot of movies lately about how you can maybe travel through a black hole to a higher dimension, you know, interstellar travel, you know, and maybe we can get through a wormhole. But, but this black hole is fascinating because of that, the, the, this idea. So this is the first ever pictured black hole that we know of. Why do I put that up there? Because sin is such a systemic core problem. It is like a black hole of eternal emptiness and nothingness. Sin turned in on itself devours anything and everything in its quest to find fulfillment outside of the maker of this universe. If you've lived in sin, which all of us have at some point in our life, and, and even as Christians, we still try to go back to those sins. And, and, and thankfully, the Holy Spirit now lives with inside of us, so we're miserable in it. And we feel like, oh, I thought that that sin would satisfy me, but now I'm even emptier than when I started. That's the black hole I'm talking about. Oh, I thought that this new relationship was going to satisfy, or I thought that this new thing that I went in debt for was going to satisfy me, but, but I found at the end of all that that I'm emptier when I started. That's what we're talking about, this systemic core issue. The reality of this bad news is, is that we were born as spiritual black holes, trying to find everything in our life to fit that emptiness and that void. But there's only one person who can literally miraculously take a black hole and fill it and transform it. And that's God. That's a relationship with God. And so I want us to see the reality of this bad news. And the reason is this, because a correct and accurate view of sin involves not just seeing the need to change one's behavior, although that's important, but rather it's seeing that behavior alone is not the problem. What sinners need is a change of being at the core. They need a new birth. They need a new nature. Second Peter 1.4 says, being made partakers of his divine nature, a spiritual heart transplant. That's what we all need, and that's what Jesus offers to us in the gospel. Jesus doesn't say, change, and then I'll become your savior. Jesus says, I'm going to become your savior and watch how your life will then change. You see the difference. You see the order. And so many times, if we're not careful, we get that wrong because we reduce sin and think, oh, well, I can change my behavior. And the reality is, we're not being honest because we know we can't change our behavior. And the reason we can't change our behavior is because we have a core issue problem. And that's why we need a savior. So the reality of this bad news, that's the first truth I want us to see. It's not just a behavioral problem. The reality is it's a systemic being problem. We were born as sinners, and we need a new birth to be made something new. The second thing, then, is to think about this, and that is our response to this bad news. Because as I pointed out in us reading the passage a little earlier, our nature or our flesh pattern is to start reading a passage of Scripture and say, oh, this is good for so-and-so. This is good for my spouse. This is good for those political people up in Washington who can't seem to get their act right. And we forget that this was describing all of us without Christ. 
And so our response to this bad news, when, when we see sin as merely behavioral, somewhat trivialized, and we see Jesus as merely a judge evaluating our behavior, then we're going to have two basic wrong responses. Two basic wrong responses. Number one, the first way we're going to respond in a wrong way is we're going to go into the self-defense mode. How do you respond when you hear the bad news that you are a sinner, that you've done wrong, that you're in the wrong? Do you go to self-defense? That wouldn't be unlike what Adam did when he was in the garden, remember? God came to Adam and said, Adam, where are you? Adam, I want a relationship with you. And what did Adam do? Defend self, defend self, shift blame, shift blame. So you wouldn't be unlike Adam. I mean, we've all been there. We've all shifted blame and defended self. Every person that's ever lived struggles with a strong self-defense mechanism. We all want to be not too bad. Oh, we know we might have done some wrong stuff, but we're not that bad compared to so-and-so. You know, that's what we do. We, when we do that, we pull out our yardsticks and we start measuring. So, well, I'm not that bad compared to so-and-so. We see ourselves as pretty good. We give ourselves massive credit to our own intentions and motives. And we ex conveniently excuse our selfish indulgences and decisions all the time. And yet, we're very excusing and permissive of our own lives, but yet we're very harsh and critical of others. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Uh-huh. We are so forgiving of our own bad driving habits. I don't know if there's any better illustration of self-defense than that one right there. We are so permissive of our own driving methods. And if someone is not going exactly the same speed as us, we're like, I can't believe it. We huff and we puff and we'd probably blow the car up if we could. Shame on you. But see, that's what we do. That's what we do. Why? Because because we, we have this built-in mechanism to shift blame and to be harsh and critical of others while being very permissive and, and giving massive credit to our own intentions and motives. There's always someone else that seems to be worse than we are, so comparison becomes our savior. Actually, comparison becomes our functional savior in that moment. Trying to find someone worse than you are makes us immediately justified in our own eyes, and thus we think in God's eyes. We say things like, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18 for just a moment. Hold your place there in uh, Romans chapter 3. And the reason that this theme is here is because it's uh, the reason that I made you stop reading Romans 3 and, and say, okay, guys, let's keep straight. This is all of us because of what happens in Luke 18. Look with me there for just a moment. Luke 18. Uh, we find ourselves in this. Situation so many times. Verse 9, Luke 18, verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. You see the comparison game? You see the people who are thinking, think that they are all that, that they are God's gift to their religious movement? Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. And here was his prayer. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this 
publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. What was the problem with this Pharisee? Where was his focus? His focus was on what he was doing. His tithing, his praying, and he didn't commit adultery, and he uh, wasn't a publican, he didn't extort other people. And so he was comparing his actions with this publican's actions. You see the comparison? So comparison was this Pharisee's savior. Because the Pharisee viewed his relationship with God through actions, through behaviors. The Pharisee failed to realize that he had a core systemic problem. So the Pharisee went into deflection, self-defense mode, shifting the focus to someone else, comparing himself with someone else, thinking he's all that. Self-defense. Many times in our life, when we hear the bad news about our condition, we shift blame. We, um, we want to compare ourselves to others. And even after we get saved, Christians who are now born-again saints, we continue to play these kinds of games so many times. We slip back into fleshly patterns of thinking, and we seek to compare ourselves with other Christians, measuring up who we think's better at performing for God. And these are the games that we play, and we can always find someone that we're outperforming. We can always look around and say, oh, well, so-and-so wasn't in church today, therefore God must hear my prayers better this, this coming Monday than they do than he does theirs. There's always someone underperforming me if I compare myself to others. And in my mind, I say things like, well, this makes me better in God's eyes. This gives me reason to proverbially pat myself on the back and say, good job, attaboy. God must be really glad with all that I'm doing more than that guy. And when we say stuff like that, we're saying exactly what the Pharisee said in Luke 18. And so what we do is we end up creating our own measuring sticks and then measuring ourselves by others and of course, when you measure yourself by others, you're always going to feel better because you become the judge, jury, and the verdict. So self-defense. We are all very good. I love how Carrie says it in this, in, in, in this book that we're using as a guide as we go through. This is in chapter 5 of Real Christianity. Forgot to mention that earlier. Pick that book up out in the lobby. It's a source for our study as we're looking at these passages. And this is a great quote from chapter 5 of that book. He says, we're all very good at defending ourselves projecting our own goodness, and tipping the scale of comparison in our favor. It's hardwired into our psyche to believe in our own goodness, even after salvation. Satan is happy many times with getting a Christian's focus off of Christ and back on self again, and he uses things like this, these games that we play. Self-defense. Now, <laughs> some of us don't have a problem with the self-defense game because... <laughs> We don't even try to go down that road of defending ourselves because we know that we've messed up. Um, we know that we failed royally in life and relationships. And so we know there's a lot of bad behavior in our past. And, and we know that we've violated and, and offended God's standard of righteousness. And we know that we don't deserve him or his goodness. So we don't try to even play the self-justification game, the self-defense game, because we know we'll lose that. What we do is go into the beat yourself to a pulp game. We call this not self-defense, but another wrong response, self-deprecation. Self-deprecation. 
The opposite extreme of self-defense is self-deprecation. Phrases like this, maybe you've said some of these before in your own life, uh, I'm just not good for anything. I'm a loser. I'm a failure. I'm worthless. I can't ever do anything right. I'm not wanted. No one loves me. Um, the danger of saying things like that is at first, that sounds humble. Sounds humble. Can't do anything right. Maybe that's true. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's probably something you can do right. Maybe one thing. But that sounds like humility, but I'm going to challenge you to think about this. I don't think it's even close. I think it's another form of self-focus when, if, when in our humility we don't turn and look to Jesus. You see, there was another guy in this Luke 18 passage, and yes, he understood his condition. Look at verse uh, 13 of Luke 18. And the publican standing afar off would not so much as lift his eyes to heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, in this situation, the, the publican did understand that he was a failure. But he knew who to turn to in the midst of his failure. That's the difference here. So don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have an accurate assessment. That's the whole point of today, is we need to have an accurate assessment of our true condition before God. But notice that sometimes humility can quickly turn into self-deprecation. Self-deprecation is a mindset that focuses on self over Savior and continually wallows in guilt, continually wallows in shame, continually wallows in remorse and regret, as though emotionally beating myself up somehow shows God how grateful and humble I am. There's a lot of religions that do this. They uh, practice this as well. They'll crawl on broken glass to try to show God how sorry they are. They'll do acts of penance. You've heard that in some religious settings. And it sounds good in one ear, but when it comes out the other side, if we're not careful, this turns into self-deprecation, which is, again, stealing the focus from Jesus. Because Jesus said, he came, he died on the cross, and he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we allow the accuser of the brethren to have audience in our life and to continue to beat us up in this guilt, condemnation, shame, remorse, regret cycle, and we never get out of the cycle. We never turn to Jesus and see that he is our advocate and friend. We never run to Christ and say, Jesus, you're enough. You took all of my sin. Yes, my past is a train wreck, but you're a master of bringing life from the dead. You're a master of speaking into a grave when a man's been dead for four days and say, come on out. Self-deprecation. It says in the book, self-deprecating response to sin is a sad replacement for real grace and redemption. Refusing to accept God's sufficient grace and forgiveness is not humble or contrite. It's merely, whew, this is powerful, it's merely veiled arrogance and idolatry. Ooh, that's just saying it like it is. And many times, this is how we respond to sin. We either respond by trying to defend ourselves and see the self-defense lie says, you're not really that bad. Sin really isn't a big deal. Justify yourself. Compare yourself. 
That's the lie of self-defense. The lie of self-deprecation says, you're so bad that perpetual penance is your only option. You say things like this. Maybe you've heard this old line. I know God's forgiven me, but I can't ever forgive myself. Careful. When we say things like that, that's a subtle way of saying, God, I'm smarter and more just than you, and I refuse to accept your final estimation of my sin and self. We might not say this, but we mean it by statements like that. We say things like, I reject your full payment and infinite grace because, well, I'm a better judge than you. And I wouldn't let me off the hook so easily. Therefore, I sentence myself. So since you won't sentence me, I will. I'm a better standard bearer of righteousness. I'm a better evaluator of eternal propitiation, payment. And I'll pay for this my way. See, it sounds humble. I know God's forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. That's dangerous. That's a sign that we are responding to our sin issues with self-deprecation. So both of these, self-defense and self-deprecation, are lies that blind you to the true gospel of grace. So what's the truth about this bad news? Turn back to Romans chapter (laughs) 3. Romans chapter number 3. We're getting close to the end here. Romans chapter 3, the truth about this bad news. You see, to overcome untrue responses regarding sin, we need to understand the truth of what sin is and what it does in our lives. The reality is, is we live in a fallen and broken universe. We are not perfect. This is not an excuse for our behavior, but it is an explanation of our behavior and our condition and the reality of the situation as it stands. We live in a fallen and broken universe, and we still live in fallen and broken bodies. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says it like this, For there is not a just man upon the earth that does good and sins not. That's the accurate diagnosis of the situation. Number two, this brokenness is inherent in the human condition. This imperfection is instinctive. You... uh, you don't have to teach. We were, um, how many of you are thankful for those memories that pop up on your Facebook feed? Everybody thankful for those? Those are so neat. Some, and sometimes, isn't it cool? They are like so timely. There's sometimes when I need just a word of encouragement and I'll encourage myself from like four years ago. How many of you are like that? You, 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 you put words of encouragement on and like four years later, Facebook encourages you? Um, well, last night, uh, please pray for my wife. I'll just be honest. She's getting to that age where clearly... All y'all youngins having babies is starting to make her covet. Thou shalt not covet, honey. Anyway, uh, yeah, and so we're looking at all these baby photos. And one of these baby photos popped up on our timeline last night of Lukey. He was a little butterball. I'm telling you, that kid was a little butterball. I forgot how chunky monkey he was, and now he's all skin and bones. But, but anyway, uh, that, that photo popped up. And I, I was thinking about this this morning and just thinking, thinking that through and uh, you know, we didn't have to teach our babies how to be selfish. <laughs> didn't have to teach them how to pitch a fit. We didn't, have to, we didn't have to teach them how to say the word no to our instructions. What is that all about? What that points us to the reality of is that no one had to teach us these things. No one had to teach us how to lie. No one had to teach us how to be harsh or critical of other people and hateful towards them. It comes naturally because we were born in Adam God says in Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
And as Paul lays out here in Romans 3, the passage that we read, he's very clear, unequivocal. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeks after God. And similar to Isaiah 53, they are all gone out of the way. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. So this brokenness in our universe, it's inherent in the human condition, came to us from the garden. Our fallenness is harmful to us and those around us, meaning these imperfections in our life are harmful because this is a core systemic issue. We know the pain that sin brings. And listen, do you realize why God hates sin so much? It's because he loves you so deeply. And he sees these things that you're doing and that I'm doing, and he knows that they're a black hole of emptiness. They will not satisfy. And and he's trying to show us, he's trying to show us, turn from your ways. Our fallenness is harmful to those, to us and those around us. We know that our sin, our imperfection brings brokenness. It creates broken relationships, bad decisions, regret, guilt, shame. Stuff that you look back on in your life and you wish you could reverse. Sin creates hurt in you and in others. It forces you to live with its consequences. This is merely the visible aspect of sin, what you can see. Imagine how bad it is beyond our understanding. Again, similar to that cancer illustration, sometimes we see physical manifestations of a serious cancer issue, but sometimes it goes unnoticed. Imagine how God sees it. We got some idea that it's bad, but imagine how God sees it. Imagine when Jesus Christ became sin for us on the cross, how God saw it and how it broke his heart. God knows the reality of sin. He says, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. So our fallenness, it harms everything around us, it harms us. And then finally, our fallenness is more powerful than we are in our own strength. These imperfections are more powerful than us in our own strength, trying to do it in Adam, never going to work. No amount of self-discipline would be enough for you to become perfect. Sin inside of you is more powerful than you. It can't be tamed by sheer willpower No tempering or training, no resolve or rules, no amount of focus or good intentions will remove the struggle. David alludes to this when he says, I was shapen in iniquity. In sin, my mother did conceive me. David understood the systemic issue. Why? David had lived it. David understood it wasn't just the things that he did. It was who he was in Adam. And that's why he longed for, well, he wrote a lot about Jesus, the Messiah. And praise God, we have a Savior who could deal with the systemic sin issue. And that gets us to finally the good news. <laughs> the good news. And guess what? We'll share a lot of that next week. But let me just share with you briefly. Because to not share the good news in a sermon would be like telling you to have cancer and then not telling you that you could be cured. Imagine for a moment that I was to step up here on the stage today and say, Guess what? Scientists have discovered the cure for all cancers. Be like, oh, yay. But if I had told you beforehand and shown you the CT scans that you had cancer, that news that the cure for cancer had been discovered would be even greater. Be like, yes. And that's the whole point. The whole point of God giving to us the bad news is to get us to the good news. 
It's a lot like when you walk into a uh, jewelry store and the jewelers don't just show you, don't worry, this isn't a real diamond. <laughs> I'd be rich if it was. Anyway, this isn't a real diamond, this is a piece of glass. But imagine if you walked into a jewelry store and, you, uh, and they were to show you the diamond like this. But what do they always do in the jewelry store? You know, they pull out the, jeweler, the jeweler's black velvet and they hold that diamond against the backdrop of that black velvet. And look how much more it sparkles and fires. This is the bad news. We're a mess. We were a train wreck without Christ. We were lost and hopeless, dead, the Bible says, in trespasses and sins. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon them, all that believe, for there is no difference, being justified freely by his grace. Mm. You see, this is what God wants us to see. This is what God wants us to realize. Understanding sin and self is critical to understanding Jesus and grace. The reality is, there is therefore now, if you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. God knew that you had, that you and I had a systemic core being problem. This is why Jesus came. He came, and this is even how he came. He was born not in Adam. He was born of the seed of a woman, but he did not have a humanly, human father. He had a heavenly father. And that was because he had to break the line of Adam. Do you see? He, was not, he did not have the same systemic core being issue that we did. So he could be our perfect substitute, our perfect federal head, our perfect representative. And he could then become for us what we could never become, the righteousness of God in him. But it took an exchange. It took us taking all of our sins in Adam and placing them upon Christ. And our memory verse for this week says, And God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is the good news. The good news is you can't change yourself, but Jesus can change you. Jesus said to a religious ruler, Nicodemus, you must be born again. What did that mean? you got to have a new core. you got to be changed at the core of your being, and then everything begins to change. What's the point of today's message? Simply this statement. It's this. Our sin is far worse than we could have ever imagined. But yet God's grace is far more breathtaking beautiful and overwhelming than we could have ever imagined. I think the reason why we're not amazed at grace is because we're still pretty amazed with ourselves. Isn't that true? If we're not amazed at grace, that should tell us something. When, when, when we come to church and we hear these songs and we sing these songs and we hear the truth and it doesn't lift our souls and encourage our walk... We have to evaluate and say, perhaps it's because I'm really amazed with myself right now because I'm being self-defensive. Or maybe you've gotten so far the other side, you're self-deprecating, and you're like, well, I'm a loser, I'm good for nothing. You say all these things that aren't true because when you say stuff like I'm worthless, that's a lie because Jesus' blood was shed for you. 
And you can tell what something's worth by what someone's willing to pay for it. And God says he paid for your very life with his own son's blood. How precious are you in God's sight? The psalmist says it like this. How precious also are your thoughts unto me, O God. How great is your loving kindness. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. And he could do that by changing the core, giving to us a new heart, a new creature, a new relationship with him. So this is good news. And what God calls us to do in this message today is to keep a proper perspective on who we were and even what we still deal with as believers. Because if you're a believer, here's the good news. You're no longer in Adam. You're in Christ. But sometimes we slip back into being self-defensive, self-deprecating. We think that sin isn't that big of a deal, so we don't. So we lose the wonder of grace. And when you lose the wonder of grace, that's a huge warning sign that you've become captivated with self. So my challenge today is that we would repent, change our mind, evaluate it. If something spoke to your heart today in the message, take this time now as we respond and say, God, help me to never lose sight of who I was and even how I try to go back to who I was. Because see, the reality is, is yeah, we're new, but we're kind of living in between, you know, the new and not yet. Yes, our spirit and soul is saved, but our body, ooh, let me tell you something. We still get older. We still live in the flesh and those flash, fleshly patterns of thinking. And there's a lot of things to unpack there, but, but that's what happens so many times. 